Hello, my dear friends. Welcome back to Sound Perspective. Uh, if you're new here, greetings. Uh, my name's Alfie. I am the host. I am a filmmaker and sound designer in beautiful Sydney, Australia. I chat to the variety of talented artists who combine sight and sound in film. Uh, sorry that I haven't released an episode in a while. I don't know if anyone is out there who actually cares about that, who is waiting for me to drop, like, Alfie, when's the next episode coming? Um, but I've been I've been developing some of my own projects and making fun art, so been a bit too busy for the podcast shenanigans. But you know what? We got a great one coming up today. We have a fabulous interview with a composer, Kate Simcoe. Kate has a background in classical composition as well as having made some brilliant EDM music in her career as a DJ. Uh, she's composed for a number of films, including We Believe in Dinosaurs, 20 Weeks, and most recently, the documentary Underplayed. Underplayed focuses on the lack of women in the electronic dance music scene and charts the history of women in electronic music. Kate did a killer soundtrack for it, and after watching, I was so keen to chat to her about it. By the way, super sorry, uh, something terrible happened when I was recording this interview. Uh, so after the interview, I reviewed what I had recorded and for some reason, a chunk of audio was missing from like the middle of the file. Really weird. Um, but thankfully, I was also recording video in the Skype session. So I just lifted the audio from the video um, but it obviously doesn't sound that good because it's from Skype, but you know, better to have those very interesting questions than to not have it at all. Um, so the first 10 minutes is pretty shit audio quality. I'm sorry about that. After about 10 minutes it goes back to normal and we're happy. Um, before we jump in, Go like the Sound Perspective page on Facebook. It's just called Sound Perspective. It's not that hard. Also, follow me on Instagram at Alfie Faber. And if you have any feedback, please do email me at contact at soundperspectivepodcast.com. I always love to hear what people have to say. And enjoy the episode. Here we go. Kate Simcoe, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you, Alfred, for having me. And um, yeah, I'm glad we can find the common time zone um, and that you're, you know, you're up at seven in the morning for me. So thank you. Of course, I would. I would do that for you, Kate. Um, thank you. <laughs> I, so let, let's start at the start. Did you, uh, so you started in composition, like classical composition and playing piano is that right yes so I started playing piano when I was five years old and mm. um, then I went to university in Chicago at uh, Northwestern and I did music technology which they, they had the vintage uh, machines so it was you know classical music concrete style uh, electronic composition alongside theory and ear training and piano and um, yeah, that's that's my original background. Cool. So from the start, you were quite into the electronic and technical side of composition. 
Okay, so I, I um, yeah, so I have like a multi-layered history here. So I had okay. the history with the piano yeah. and I was, you know, a good classical piano student and, mm. and that was, that was it. And then I went to my first rave, underground rave when I was 15. <laughs> and that's when my parallel path in music started. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I have the classical training alongside from age 15, going to underground events and, you know, just becoming super passionate about electronic music and mm. starting to collect vinyl when I was 18 and becoming the music director of the dance and hip hop format at the radio station in Chicago mm. and leading the station for a couple of years and, you know, becoming a solo electronic music artist, um, combining both worlds really. But mm. when I say combining both worlds, it was like just taking the music training to be able to compose in electronic styles, you know, being able to jam out keys or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so those are, those are my two paths that intersected yeah. at some point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and was, what was Chicago like in the underground electronic music scene back then? I don't know my history too well, but isn't Chicago one of the kind of like birthplaces of house and tech and stuff like that? Absolutely. So Chicago, was incredible like so mm. it's the birthplace of house music but also at that time so this is like the, the late 90s mm. was when post-rock was going off in chicago oh, so if you've ever cool. seen yeah so tortoise is from chicago the right. local thrill jockeys from chicago if you've ever seen the movie high fidelity that's about a record store in chicago so oh, okay. there was this you know the post-rock scene which was combining electronics with rock and roll and mm. those bands were like the the coolest new sound in alternative music. Pitchfork came out of right. Chicago and it just just opened up, you know, in Chicago in the in yeah. the mid 90s. Um, and then on the hip hop side, we had Common and Kanye West and, you know, like hip hop was going off. I mean, it was just insane for music, mm. basically. It was mm. like if, if you're talking about cool music for, you know, whatever you're into in your 20s. I mean, it was just like, there you go. Mm, it was there mm, it was awesome yeah yeah <laughs> so was it a bit of a melting pot or do you remember any kind of genre standing out as the cool thing in your area back then well everything was starting to get well everything was already more you know separating mm. not as not as specifically as now but it was like house was different from techno which was different from progressive which is different from hip hop, which was different from down tempo or uh, breakbeat. You know what I mean? So there was bigger boxes, but they were boxes. So even house and techno were different. You know, house party was like a Chicago style house party. And that was different than techno party with Jeff Mills or the Detroit techno guys or European sound, you know? So, um, but that said, everybody was into different stuff and the Chicago scene was thriving you know because you know still if you're going to clubs it's like it's more exciting to be in a city a city where mm -hmm. you know you're waiting in line at a club for a different genre of music than your club but you still see young people enthusiastic about different kinds of music and you yeah. know what's happening around you know what i mean so yeah, yeah it was just a good time definitely yeah that's awesome yeah. were there um yeah. many people in the art music scene that you were involved in that also had that multidisciplinary uh, well, love you know, of different it's like, genres? 
back then is for example i i do think that the thrill jockey guys so i started djing at a bar called danny's mm. where i'd get paid about 80 dollars for a four-hour <laughs> all vinyl set and, yeah. and like by the way i did it for the money when i was yeah. a college student i thought that that was a lot of money but anyway um <laughs> yeah anyhow um i remember john mcintyre from tortoise used to play there and like those guys and that scene were more inspiring they were older than me mm. um but i just remember like john hughes the film director who's like the iconic director who did pretty in pink and the breakfast club right, and right. you know that all like those are those are like the iconic movies of the 80s and they, yeah. they were all a lot of them are filmed in chicago because yeah. john hughes is from chicago and his son is john hughes jr and he started mm. a record label in chicago called hefty Right. So that was like the more privileged sort of scene that that was yeah. like it seemed to be quite trained and just like yeah. have funding and like work <laughs> with you know good artists and like yeah. you know and and then there was a record producer named Steve Albini in Chicago who's fantastic who recorded Stereo Lab and a lot of you know he was like the go-to guy and you know again re- with Steve Albini and the um the whole post-rock sound you know he was recording brass you know, mm. like really, really good sounding brass and strings. And so there was, you know, but that wasn't my niche, but I mm. knew it was there. Yeah. Right. And I knew that people were like into this post rock and combining mm. in a way that I wanted to with electronic, mm. you know, it just took me a little bit longer to do it, but you know, yeah. it happened. <laughs> and how, how did you feel? Do you feel that, um, uh, being around the, that much electronic music and being involved in that scene did it influence your career as a classical composer not really so no i don't think so because what happened was i was i was studying under the you know the umbrella of music technology Mm. and i really just wanted to make music that i wanted to hear i never tried to make like academic kind of music and it was definitely around me so at northwestern at that time the composition department again i was in music technology and there was two other people i don't remember if it was one or two like my graduating class had either two or three people in it i think it was three two other than me i mean it was not popular because most most people who can play a classical instrument to that level of proficiency Mm. it's like not an electronic music head like they're more likely to be (laughs) with something else you know what I mean like they've probably spent a lot of time dedicated to classical music so anyway it was in a very small niche but the the composition department was very much into like John Cage and Mm. um, Zanakis and um, even less Philip Glass like well I guess like Steve Reich Mm. you know was really big but so you know minimalism Mm. but also very experimental like I said John Cage you know performing that you know the piece that's just silent you know stuff like this was very big and I had I I kind of like went through the layers with myself in terms of what I what was important to me as a composer Mm. and what came back to me is like or what I came back to was from my experience at clubs and electronic music it's about Mm. the audio that comes through the speakers for me personally you know, and, and, and I'm not, and it's different for different people, but for me, I'm not, I don't like, and I'm not, I'm not impacted by music 
more if I've read a document about the process. Like I'm not yeah. a process person when it comes yeah. to music. That's just, so anyway, you know, mm. so yeah, I, I just think like my, I, I, from the beginning, I just sort of wanted to just make the music that I wanted to listen to. And that was my, mm. that was my mission. Yeah. So, and then what was, uh, when did the move into composition for film happen? So when I did this undergraduate degree that I was mentioning at Northwestern, um, they did not teach Pro Tools and they didn't teach Mm. any sort of instruction of electronic music with video. And so to graduate, we had like a final senior, you know, project. Mm. And that, you know, I had to have approved by my advisor. And for that project, I, I chose to teach myself pro tools and score my first film. So, I mean, I really, yeah, I mean, I was just like, I really wanted to do it. Once, once I found out that you could just drop a movie file into these, you know, into logic or pro tools, I was like, Oh my gosh, like, I really, really want to see what this is all about. And um, it was, so yeah, it's been, it was, you know, what I wanted to do then. And, I moved to LA right after graduation and mm. the job I, I mean, it's so cliche, but the job I moved to LA for fell through and I ran <laughs> out of money. I mean, I moved to LA when I was 22 to make it in film scoring. You know, yeah. it's like, it's, it's hilarious in retrospect, but you know, it was painful at the time. Yeah. <laughs> so I've wanted to do this for a while, Alfred. I right. just, you know, yeah. I, I, I just, uh, I just dove in you know, mm. real hard at 22 yeah. <laughs> and realize it's, it's not that sort of industry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, were, okay, you know? were there any um, scores uh, or films that you remember loving as went in that formative time? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, ones that stood out to me in terms of me believing that I could have a place doing it or that my voice could do it were um, films like Cliff Martinez Drive, you know, so, you know, like electronic music like that, or mm. even Blade Runner, oh, right? you know, yeah. when Blade came out, you know, just hearing electronic scores mm. um, that were, you know, very emotional and mm. effective. But then also, I mean, just growing up, I just remember listening to Danny Elfman. I remember in Edward Scissorhands mm. and, listening to the pizzicato bass and sort of his iconic sound and mm. just being real, you know, just having a lot of admiration for that. And, mm. you know, I was really young at the time that, you know, the, those films were coming out. Um, but yeah, I do remember watching them and just being mesmerized. So yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it, it, for me, it's, it, it, it seems like something that I just switched to from DJing or something, yeah. but really i wanted to do it before djing really right but like yeah, yeah yeah i did and i mm. moved to la to do it but like i said with a very poor plan <laughs> <laughs> who needs yeah. a plan you go to la oh. you make it big you're right. a film star everyone knows that's how it happens oh my god i mean it is what it is i learned a lot i yeah. learned a lot Alfred. but yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and then so when I look at, I've been watching some of your films and when I look at your IMDb credits, it starts with uh, the documentary, The Adam Smashers, I think. Yeah. So yeah. was that one of your first big credits? When, 
how did you come into that? Yeah, so that was my first um, feature length film. Mm. And I don't, so the, the director is Chicago based mm. and he knew me somehow through Northwestern. So, mm. I mean, it, it was that pro, me being proactive and scoring the film. They, Northwestern had a practical film department back then. Oh, I mean, right. I wish they still did. Yeah, now it's just like film theory and film mm. studies, but they had students, you know, sc- creating films. And mm. the director still teaches, you know, film studies there, but it's mm. all theoretical. But anyway, I, I believe he found out about me through scoring my first short film, mm. uh, which is on VHS right back there. Oh, you can't see me because <laughs> I'm on the spaceship. But if I wasn't on the spaceship, I would point behind me right. to a closet where I have the VHS tape. And so he found wow. me from there and he hired me to do the Atom Smashers. And it was really, I mean, I mean, it was like, that was 2009. Mm. And that was the experience that was like, okay, wow, you're having a lot of fun DJing. And mm. in, a, in a way it's like, you're living the dream. However, don't forget about your film score dream. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I yeah. really, really was like, I just loved it. And, and I also felt my boundaries at that time as a composer. So, mm. you know, while that film score somehow got a good review in Pitchfork and like was released on Ghostly International, I mean, mm. which is amazing. Mm. But, you know, now in, you know, hindsight's 2020, I mean, I was using the Logic Audio um, orchestra samples. Like between us, Alfred. Like seriously, like it sounds good. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't. I love. I love that soundtrack. I wouldn't have noticed. People people really liked it, you know. And it was like, you know, sometimes the purity of intention, I guess, right? Mm. Maybe so. It was like, you know, I my heart was in the right place, and my musical ideas. But anyway, I I was playing strings on the on the keyboard, like you know, you'd play piano chords, and Mm. I just knew that there's more to that in terms of voice leading and mm. orchestration. Yeah. Um, so yeah, anyway, that's when I decided I love this and I'm going to go ahead and um, pursue a master's because I, I just had realized that the only way that I'm going to learn how to write for orchestra is if I stop DJing every weekend or multiple times a week, let alone mm. every weekend. And I just focus on it, you know? Um, So yeah, that was 2009. And then in fall of 2012, I moved to London to do the two-year master's course at Royal College of Music and Composition for Screen. Mm. And that was the peak of my DJ career. So when I moved here, um, yeah, I mean, it was like I had a top 10 in the Beatport Deep House. Yeah, so ending 2011, I had a Deep House hit. Wow. And yeah, it was a year end hit and I was getting a lot of requests and I just stuck to my guns. I was like, cool. you know, my booking agent was like, you know, I've got this great opera in Moscow or I've got, you know, at the coolest yeah. club and the coolest club here and the coolest club there. And I was like, nope, I got to study. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the scene like in uh, London for that? Is, uh, is there much work for you DJing there? Do you still DJ at all? Um. Well, not during COVID. Oh, <laughs> well, of course. In the past couple yeah. of years, though, when you've been uh, more serious about like composing, is DJing something you still do? 
So, yeah, I mean, when I can. So when you mentioned London Electronic Orchestra, just, mm. to, just to say, like, you know, I, I was DJing and producing my own music. And then mm. I moved to London. And then at the Royal College of Music, I formed my own ensemble. So that's mm. my ensemble called London Electronic Orchestra. Mm. And now I perform live with the ensemble. So that's a live set of strings. So it's harp, violin, cello, and then sometimes a full orchestra, but depends on the budget mm. and me. And then otherwise DJing. Um, but it's like, I mean, it's, it's DJing is like about being present all the time. Mm. It's about, you know, like the, playing every festival and hanging out at the club every weekend. You know, mm. it's, it's, about, it's about having this perception that everyone's booking you and yeah. like, I mean, and yeah. So, I mean, I still do DJ and I, mm. like the last time I performed, well, it wasn't actually DJing, but the last lives that I had was in New York, um, the last weekend of February of 2020, mm. you know, and it was a huge party for City Fox with um, some incredible artists, you know, mm. I, so I still play really good events worldwide, mm. but it's, it's a lot less than before. I also have a three-year-old son. So oh, okay. it was like. You know, it's also like, I just can't, you know, I, I can't yeah. go away for two weeks anymore. I, I yeah. would love to, I'd love to do like Australia for a weekend and then mm. Asia for a weekend and come back to London, which mm. I used to do, but I, I can't with my, my little guy mm. really. He's yeah. He's like not feeling that at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good segue into chatting about underplayed, which by the way, was so good. I really enjoyed yeah. that. Great film. <laughs> How was it brought to you? Because I feel like you were one of the perfect people for this in that you have a background as a composer, but you're also straight, very strong background as a DJ. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, I mean, having these conversations, you know, it's been really nice. And I, I, I'm so grateful that there's an interest in mm. the film and, and that, you know, above and beyond that, people are even asking about, you know, my path, which has helped me revisit a lot. And, and I'm hoping that sharing my story is empowering and and helpful to others because, you know, really, you know, even when we're joking about me moving to L.A. and everything else, it, it yeah. really was a story of me building to where I am through a lot of hard work on my own. Yeah. You know, I didn't. I didn't have a boys club, obviously, like, you know, it was always just me. It was, you know, the mm. statistics, by the way, that are in the film is that 95% of DJs are men. Um, there's less than 3% women in technical roles in the music industry mm. and 0.3% women of color in mm. technical roles. So that's like sound engineers and producers. So, you know, originally I, I'm, a, um, you know, I'm coming up as a, electronic music producer so i would have been in the three percent category mm. um and so yeah i mean it was just it's it's just been it's been a you know a road on my own but the way that this happened was when i left la and i had no money moved back to chicago i ended up assisting a composer at a very small music company mm. that did advertisements and one of the music supervisors from the ad agency told me you know hey if i ever get an electronic music project i'll let you know i mean i was the girl who was like taking the food orders and making that's coffee, cool. you know yeah. chatting people up 
And so that was around 2006. And right. his name is Gabe. Yeah, Gabe McDonough. He works now in LA. He moved from Chicago to LA. Mm. And I I checked. The last time I emailed him was when um, we released the London Electronic Orchestra album in 2016. Mm. You know, we just always, you know, not all the time, but just like, you know, when something important happened, sort of was like, hey, you know, just did this thing, da da da. Yeah. And then tw- 2019, I, he literally was like, Kate, I got it. Like, I finally <laughs> got it. It was like, it was. 13 years later, but he's like, I've got the project for you. This is the one I told you I'm going to get you on like a that's cool electronic so project score. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I mean, that that's like I'm saying, you know, it might, you know, while we're on this podcast and it seems like, you know, a tangent in my personal life, again, I hope that, that it's an inspiration to, you know, to anyone where, you know, of course we all have those times in our lives. And even for me at that time in my life, I was like, what am I doing? I went to Northwestern and I'm making coffee and I'm taking <laughs> lunch or anything. Like, what am I doing? Yeah. You know what I mean? But it's like, you know, it, the point is, it's like just staying true to where you want to go and just getting yourself in the room with people who are working in the, in the field where you want to be yeah. helps you. Yeah. So, you know, not everyone's a composer who listens to this, but, you know, when we're talking about film, I think that's, that's good advice is get in the room with, you know, people who are working on film or TV. Yeah. And that's how I got it. Yeah. Mm. Did you, have you also found uh, that barrier as being a woman composer in the film world? So, yeah. I mean, how can I say it? Basically, post production of film is when there's no money left and everyone's really freaked out that something's going to go wrong. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, the beginning process of a film is when it's quite, it's the most dreamy and, you know, the people are the most idealistic Mm. and the most risks are taken and, Mm. you know, like people are thinking big. And then by the end, like I said, it's over budget, you know, it's late Mm. and, everyone's just starts worrying and and getting too many cooks in the kitchen in terms of opinions and Mm. watering it down and da 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 and that's when composers are hired right yeah so they don't want to take a risk and it's like when 90 so the statistics for film composers you know gender wise it's in 2019 the top 250 films in hollywood had six percent female composers wow. in 2020 yeah in 2020 it went down to five percent went down that's yeah, crazy yeah so if you can imagine it's like well 250 composers right i think i know what this number is well it's 12 it's 12 and a half composers but like 12 mm. so if you can imagine like you're at columbia pictures or whatever and you know you, have, you know, of 250 films, that's a lot of films. Mm. You've seen, you know, only 12 to 13 women's names up there, right? Mm. And you have pressure, like there's so much pressure on the film to have a composer come in who's going to do the job and like it's not going to be a risk at that point. Like you just want to get it across the line and you mm. have somebody who's going to like work day and night and, you know, da 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 like yeah i mean i it's it were you know you were just asking it's a, a long-winded way of but helping people visualize why yes like mm. sometimes it is hard 
think is a woman and that, you know, people don't want to take a risk. And for some reason, people think women are a risk. That's more. insane. That's it's such a <laughs> weird way of saying it, isn't it? Women are a risk. We can't hire yeah. women because they're, they're just risky. Yeah. Can't be, you know, yeah. they have babies. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> God knows what other stuff they have to do besides work 24 seven on the film. <laughs> Yeah. Well, um, in the film, you, uh, there was also a lot of music from the participants. Um, how did you kind of work with that? Like work between, was that the role of the music editor in which you just provided your stuff and they worked it between, or were you looking at a pick lock and thinking this is where I can fill in and there was no music editor. Really? Really? <laughs> wow. Trust me, a couple of times I was like, uh, when am I going to meet the music editor? <laughs> like, where's the music editor? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, there was not a music editor. Um, wow. But that was okay. It was, it was a, it was like a family vibe style documentary in a yeah. way because there had to be so much trust. Mm given to Stacy, the director, mm. you know, the artists were sharing their honest experiences and they just were trusting that she was going to deliver, mm. you know, and, and, and not deliver, but that she was going to portray them in a positive way, you know, mm. and for the greater good. And so in that sense, it was because of that relationship that they were able to, I think, you know, license a decent amount, you know, it, they, mm. it wasn't treated. I don't think that underplay was treated in the same way as some other mega feature, although it was sponsored by Bud Light Canada, you know, mm. they did have corporate sponsorship and stuff. That's how it was able to be made at that production level. Mm. Um, but anyhow, the licensed music, you know, was just really like through Stacy, not through like a third person. It was because yeah. of her good relationship with the artists that she interviewed that they were able to get the tracks and there wasn't yeah. a third person in the middle, you know? And um and then yeah, I mean, in terms of you know, I've heard a couple of people say like, oh, it was like seamless, it was you know, going from one to the other. The edits were changing, you know, quite a bit mm. because the film wasn't done and festival season was coming, so I was like, I need to get started. You know, mm. I need to start scoring yeah. and I'll just deal with it if edits change. And then I was like, oh my God, that totally changed. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I just wrote a three minute piece between these two things and like, mm. neither are there anymore. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so there was a lot of that. So uh, I don't even know how it ended up being like, it seems like it's seamless. I Because people keep saying like, it feels like it's seamless. I'm like, wow, I don't know how we ended up there. Um, but yeah, overall everything, you know, I think also cause I'm classically trained to when I did have the final picture lock, I could listen to like, at least like key matching and making sure mm. that, you know, when I knew like, this is a final cut and this, it is what it is. You know, there was a couple of times that I was like, okay, I better like change the key of mm. this. Mm. So that, you know, yeah. when the next DJ's track comes on, it's not like a clash. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, you were dealing with a lot of kind of different styles of EDM from the different musicians. So how did you kind of balance the tone? Did you try and, uh, were you consciously thinking about how 
where you were sitting between them all? Well, okay, so I I wanted the score to be its own thing mm. and also to not be pigeonholed as a genre. So, mm. you know, while you just said like artists of EDM, and it's true, most of them are EDM artists, but mm. Suzanne Ciani, for example, isn't. Mm. And um, Princess Sound Engineer Susan Rogers is on there, and, you know, mm. she's not EDM. Yeah, I, yeah. I, you know, and then we look at the pioneers of electronic music, like uh, Dahlia Derbyshire, and you know, looking at the movie synthesizer history and that kind of stuff. So I was just like, I went into this like, okay, what I don't want to do is make an EDM soundtrack. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. this is about the whole point of the movie is like, let's look at the history of electronic music up until now and see, you know, women's participation level, mm. and then highlight these like superstar EDM artists mm. of today. But more of like, okay, this is where we are today. But it's the whole history, mm. you know. So I wanted this. I wanted the soundtrack and the score to show my appreciation of electronic music as an art form, mm. and not to just be pigeonholed as a certain genre or club music, you know. Just to convey all. Sort of like I mentioned, why I like Blade Runner and Cliff Martinez Drive and soundtracks like that. To just have it be an electronic score mm. that was conveying all of the layers of emotion that classical mm. instrument can. Yeah, yeah, because I, uh, listening to the soundtrack outside of the um, movie itself, I liked how it wasn't just an album of bangers. It was like a very distinctly uh, score soundtrack, which was called, but very uh, distinctly influenced by the content of the film. Cool. Well, thank you. And I, I bought <clears throat> I bought a couple synthesizers that have the sounds. So like have a so like I was using a sound palette mm. that I thought <clears throat> that I thought you know for example yeah in the film what I did is I created a sound palette that mm. was based off the artist. So for example, Res you know has like a real deep bass sound, or I was listening to the more electronic quality mm. of EDM versus what if my electronic music taste or style coming from Chicago is more analog and classic. So, you know, I did buy a couple synths so that I was like, okay, here's my palette of sound. So my mm. sound world that I'm going to use is going to be more similar to them, mm. but I'm going to write music that reflects the emotion of the film yeah. right so yeah. like you know there's not going to be beats it's not going to be edm mm. however i'm gonna i'm gonna use like my toolkit will include mm. their sound world something that i noticed looking at your credits and watching some of your stuff is that you've predominantly worked in documentary and mm -hmm. is that at all an intentional thing or something that you wanted to go after do you do you particularly like working in doco? You know what? I I do love it, mm. but I, I really would love to work on... I did a feature drama, and I would love yeah, to do... Yeah, 20 weeks. Uh, 20 weeks, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I'd love to do... I would love to do more feature, mm. just, you know, just narrative films. Mm. Um, that said, I love documentaries. And when I studied here in London, I studied with Howard Davidson, who's scored so many documentaries for the BBC mm. and um, he taught me a lot and you know I do love documentaries mm. I have to say but I, I don't I want I don't want to only do documentaries but I do yeah. love them 
Yeah. <laughs> so what have you got um, coming up next then? So I've just, everything's, you know, secret, but I've just pitched Ooh. for a, a TV series. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you're, I don't think you're really allowed or supposed to say. I think it's you know, yeah. taboo. Right? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've, I've pitched for a TV series that would be amazing with sci-fi. Mm, um, cool. And, you know, sort of female-driven mm. characters and stuff. Um, so that's just gone out. Everything was on hold, Alfred, for, mm. you know, a while now. In, yeah. in the States and the UK. And so it was like there was a brief period over the summer where some production started up again, but then they were, you know, shut down again. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, I'd sort of meet my composer agent here in London for, of course, an outdoor coffee walk in the rain. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you, you can picture it, you know, London <laughs> escape during lockdown. And um, she was just basically advising me, like, I don't really think it's worth writing people right now you know just like Mm. looking for stuff you know she's like i'll just you know it's just nothing's you know we're on top of it there's just not new stuff so anyway Mm. things are just coming back right now and Mm. i think the timing of the film is great in terms of you know getting myself out there at a time when things are happening and otherwise i'm working on an album so finishing an album yeah yeah with um uh, UK-based DJ Jamie Jones. Okay. Um, so he's, yeah. So he's. It, it. One funny thing is, um, when I said I've just like watched the film so many times that at the beginning, where they have that uh, Billboard Top 100 DJs, he's on there. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, it's just that was also a really funny thing, like sharing the studio with him and like you know, like chatting with him while and like just like see his face like go across in the film. You know, he's like you know one of the one of the ninety five men. Um, <laughs> Consorting with the enemy. I know. <laughs> anyway, so we have an album that's um, orchestral electronic, and our project's called Opus One. Cool. And it's full orchestra. Yeah, full orchestra. Wow. And just finishing up those mixes and then planning as soon as the mixes are almost done, like our demo mm. mixes, that is. And as soon as that's done, I'm starting my new London Electronic Orchestra album. Mad. You know? So, yeah. yeah. So it's like, that's just how it is. I'm, exci- I'm excited to work on my own music. And I'm one thing I've learned is in the arts, it's just, it's best not to push, you know, mm. it's like, it's better to just be doing your thing and working on an album than like networking and pushing for stuff. Mm. Sometimes it takes 19 years, Alfred. Yeah. (laughs) I don't want to have 19 years of like asking people, how's it going? How's it going? You know, like, you know, (laughs) very true. you make good relationships and do good work and, you know, um, opportunities come when they're meant for you really. But in the meantime, I'm just going to be writing my own music. Yeah. That is such a beautiful end to the interview, Kate. Thank you so much for your wise words of inspiration. Thanks for joining me, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. Have a really good day over there. Yeah, you too, Kate. Thanks again to Kate. Um, Underplayed is now available to watch on Amazon Prime. So do go watch it. It's a very good film. Um, And again... Thanks, as always, to Jean-David Le Goulon, who did the sound design and music for the podcast. And catch you next time. Have a good one.